Welcome to Trainer Talk. I'm Max Bevilacqua. And I'm Gwen Krause. We're international negotiation practitioners who missed our colleagues so much during the pandemic that we created this podcast so we could talk to them. On our show, Trainer Talk, we interview professional negotiators about how they apply theory to real-world problems. Our guest today is Jody Shire. Jody is a seasoned th- psychotherapist, and in addition to her clinical work, she's a teaching consultant at the Program on Negotiation at Harvard Law School and an adjunct faculty member at Lesley University. We're thrilled to have Jody on the program because she is one of the original developers of the interpersonal skills exercise, which many, many of our listeners have used. And we're going to talk to Jody today about how the interpersonal skills exercise came to be and her experiences over 40 years in the world of negotiation. Jody, I I met you before I knew you at the program on negotiation. Um, when people hear the name Jody Shire, you can usually see them smile if you can see their face, um, which lets you know that they've met you. Um, Jody, I don't know how many more opportunities I'll have to heap compliments on you without you objecting. So I'm, I'm taking advantage of this right now. Um, but, but Jody, you're, you're a fixture in, in the community. Uh, everyone who works with you um, can't say enough. And I, I can speak to that as both um, someone who's taken some of your courses. I know people who have been in your classes. I'm at Leslie. Um, so you're a professor. Um, I, would, I would say you're a fantastic writer as well. You're a thinker in terms of family systems and family therapy. Um, I'm curious to hand this over to you. Um, how do you describe yourself and and tell us about the hats you wear? So I uh, would describe myself both as a therapist and a teacher and a consultant, a consultant to relationship systems, small and large, um, organizational and familial, and uh, couples and families. And... I've been doing it a very long time, and over the many years have been very fortunate and privileged to learn so much from so many people that I've worked with. And I, I love the teaching part of my life at Leslie, and in smaller settings at different um, community centers or health centers, and I, I love my private practice, and... I love supervising people and have been running supervision groups, some for in one group that began in 1978, and the people are still, almost the same members are still there, and many of the same members, and a, a group, a newer group of younger graduates who worked with me in a class that I taught that were interested in learning more. So I guess that is who I am. I am... I'm also uh, very lucky to be a mother and have a wonderful daughter who also does this work and um, and is actually about to have a baby any minute. So, <laughs> I mean, any time between now and three or four days from now. So that's a very exciting time in my life and exciting for her. And I also loved the teaching experience that Max and I did together and created together with a great deal of Max's help. Um, 
And I've been doing IP, I, I was one of the three people who created IPS, and I've been doing it since then. And we created it, I think, in the very early 80s, is my guess, right when Roger Fisher started the first program, the, the program on negotiation at that time. And I don't know if you want me to go into that, but so we could go into that in more detail later. But I, I, I think that's mostly who I am. I love. Even after all these years, I could say that I am very grateful that I somehow got into this whole thing, and I'm sure when I started, I had no idea what it was all about, <laughs> um, or what I would actually be doing with my life. It sort of happened, and I feel deeply grateful that even after all these years, I can say that working with the most extraordinary thing and I've worked with people from all walks of life, in all kinds of settings, that while there is much sameness in our experience of humanity, there is not one story in all these years that has ever been the same. The, the events might be similar in some family or some individual or some couple, but the story about the event is, and the experience of that event is unique to each person who tells it. And that's a pretty stunning thing because I've been doing this longer than you've been alive. <laughs> so, <laughs> <long time. laughs> so Jody, we're we're so thrilled to have you on the podcast. And Max and I and many, many, many of our listeners are longtime uh, users and devotees of the interpersonal skills exercise, also known as IPS. And so we were just wondering if you could share with us that creation story. And when you first created it, what was, what was the purpose behind it? So what happened way back then, and I don't remember the exact dates, but I think it had to be the either late 70s or early 80s. Roger Fisher, um, two of my colleagues, Dick Rick and I, were sort of a threesome, sort of on the, the brink of family therapy coming into its own. And as, as, a, as a system, as a way of thinking, and as a way of working with people, which was dramatically different than how individual psychotherapy was, primarily in that it shifted from a pathology focus, a problems-based focus about people, to a strength-based resilience focus about people, and looking at the circularity of relationships rather than sort of a linear model that was true in the medical model. So I can't actually remember whether the three of us were doing this event that Roger Fisher happened to be at or just Dick Chasen was at it. And we were doing something about showing a, a, a situation of modeling a situation of working with a family divorcing with the emphasis on at that time there was such an adversary, still and still sadly, an adversarial procedure. And we did this um, action-oriented kind of interview which we had all been developing together, the three of us, to really show by experiencing from this volunteer family the impact of divorce on the two people, the two adults, and also the children, using different kinds of sculptural exercises and role reversal, which were the things that we were developing around therapy and working with families. And so Roger apparently saw, Roger Fisher apparently saw that and called Dick 
and asked whether he could come with some of his colleagues, that he was developing a program on negotiation, and that what he witnessed was very about, especially around the importance of being in, being able to move into the other person's shoes, especially even a divorcing couple being able to do that, and for them to be able to look and be in their children's shoes, that he believed that he needed, to, he wanted something like that in the program because so much of what getting to yes and late, much later difficult conversations is about is being able both to understand the multiple perspectives in each interaction, but and most importantly, to be able to understand and value and validate that the person with whom you're, or the people with whom you are negotiating, that their point and their feeling that is every bit as valid as your own, and asked us whether we could create an exercise like the one he watched, but that would relate to the program. And so the three of us went, we had regular weekly meetings, and so when we next got, in that meeting was Roger Fisher, Frank Sander, and Bruce Patton. Um, and then we, then when we met again, the three of us met again the next week, and we had been working on this exercise and modifying an exercise that each of us separately had learned, because in each of our trying to develop ways of working with families, each trained with different people all over the country, learning different action kinds of ways of intervening because, just a quick diversion, because at that time people were trained either to work with children, adolescents, or adults, and people's fears were that they didn't know how you could have people of different age groups, let alone you could have more than one person in a room, but a different age span, and how could you, you couldn't just talk, and you couldn't just play. So we... So anyway, after we met with Roger and Frank and Bruce, we met together and talked about it. We had been developing this exercise, actually, for couples, which essentially was, we were in the process, I had been thinking about it, and we were practicing on each other, that it was that, uh, that each, each one of us would be enrolled as one member of the couple, and that we tried a variety of things. First, to have, so if I'm a member of the couple and Max is a member or, or Gwen or whomever, then I would learn something about doubling and I would be doubling for Max, talking about his experience of me. And there was a way that we knew that that would break the, the nastiness between them because moving as a double, after we had talked about doubling and training people a little bit about doubling, that me being Max's double, I would have to move into his experience of me and voice parts of it and voice some of the things that I imagine he's feeling, even if he's not saying them. And then we would reverse roles. And so we started from that thinking, well, that's exactly what Roger was what the, the three of them were asking for on some level, but not about a couple relationship, but around imagining some student or some lawyer being in a negotiation and being able to actually, both in thinking about what it will be like to talk to this person, imagining what this other person may be experiencing, imagining talking to me. 
And so we worked it out with the three of us and then presented it to them. And it was really exactly what they wanted. And, um, and then, of course, because of the timing, as I said before, they asked Dick and Rick to come and do the program. And, um, and because of the time and social context, all of that being what it was, it didn't even dawn on me that that was an issue for me. That just seemed like how things went. I would help them create something and they would present it. And that's when things were very male-dominated in this field. Um, so I don't know if I'm going on too long about it. So then, um, so that was the beginning of it. And, the, and the, it was quite simple in the beginning stages when it was mostly Dick and Rick. Um, and what they did was have someone, they had the triads and you would, although what was done differently, both two triads would be in the room at the same time. So, that, but in any case, it would be having someone tell you what the, situation is, what the difficult conversation was with the absent party. And um, we would immediately would sh uh, have the coach tell the story to sh shorten the story and then have um, almost immediately move to have the presenter double for the absent party. And, as, and that one of us would interview the absent party about what they were anticipating about this conversation with the the pr presenter, and so that went on, and it was it was really people found it very useful. And then I think it was only two or three years before they invited me to come in, and that was mostly because the program had grown and they needed another person, um, and. And I, I thought the idea was great, and I also, having now played with it for three years in my own work, had some other ideas that I would add in it that I actually thought everybody was doing, but I've learned that throughout the years nobody else was doing, but that I would work right away with the presenter around looking at, both around what it was that he or she or they wanted to say, that what the issue was for them, and then spend a considerable amount of time before going to the absent party, imagining having that working as a double, double with the presenter, exploring the many things that were in the way of being able to raise the issue, and often that would lead to whatever the issues were in that person's life, being afraid they might be a disappointment, where they had failed someone in the past, where someone had been very critical of them in the past when they had spoken up, any number of things. And so I would then imagine with them, if they could imagine where that took place in their life, and to imagine playing it out a little bit, very briefly, and then play the scene so he, he she, or they could re-experience it, and then to reform the scene so that this painful event could be something less than haunting and more that they could experience how it could contribute to their life differently and then come back and then look at what the issues were in talking to the absent party and there may still be some things in the way and there would be the negotiating with yourself was another thing that came up around how easy it is for some people to abandon themselves in order to do what they imagine the other person 
wants. Um, and so we play, so it got, became more elaborate. And at least the way I did it was more elaborate. And um, it was often very extraordinary. In the early days, um, there was a lot, the, the time limits weren't so tight. And so um, there were times very early on when I was working with Roger, Roger Fisher, and um, he would get so moved by what was happening and by the the often very painful stories that people felt. And one in particular that I remember where someone had a sibling who was in some way limited and they were struggling with their own feelings of injustice around having such a full life. And that was deeply touching to Roger. And we would go on for hours at night, sometimes not leaving there till after 11 or 11.30. That would be the last group often, and it would go on forever. Um, and so that's, that's basically how it began and how it ran, and ran until um, before the pandemic, really, when, when Bob Bourdon left, and he had been a fighter f to continue it. The law school had sort of wanted to phase it out because it was became a very expensive program. There were a lot of consultants, um, but, and too effective. <laughs> um, and deeply meaningful, I, I have to say, in all the years that I did it, it never stopped being incredibly meaningful, and people were deeply appreciative. And um, so that's really the story of it. I, I could talk more. I mean, the, the, at the law school, they added the you know, the different, the skills that people wanted to see themselves do better. Oh, and also the, the, the added part to the exercise, of course, was then preparing in the, in the um, enrolling session. And then there was the filming session where people had a number of different takes from, the, from what the baseline was to what, was, what looked like success and felt like success. So, and that was how it began and really mostly continued all the way till when it stopped. And it's sad that it stopped. I think it's very sad. Well, it's so amazing, first of all, just to like hear history about the tradition that brought me into the field and brought so many of us to the field. I remember you to have been a founder of it. From my perspective, without exaggeration, doing something that has psychodrama and gestalt um, is a necessity for any trainer or training who is actually interested in behavior change. I just, I don't think there's another way around it. I really don't. Um, and so it's, it's too bad. But I also want to say, and, and make a public dedication too, um, it's still being used. We're still using it. And I think it's really nice to have you on the show to revive it's, it's, it's essence because I do think, and, and we can pull this thread, one thread is that it's male dominated. And I think that the idea of doing something that's heart centric versus head centric um, doesn't fit at a law school. But from my perspective, having taken that course, the most impactful things were the heart parts of it, where the first, the first um, session I was on the floor with my students drawing a self portrait of myself as a negotiator or we're asking lawyers and, and judges, okay, what's your negotiation spirit animal in an executive course with Bruce Patton? And these are the things that little 
you know, Jody, it's so funny when I finally got to take a course with you, I realized as you were speaking all the things that I had known and enjoyed because I was a student of Babu Don that were that were yours and I could hear them that they were clearly yours and that I benefited from them. So it, it's it's amazing to get that history. I'm curious if you want to talk at all about more broadly the way we, you know, how well you think the the legal field has done with continuing the work versus forgetting where it came from. And just to take a step back more broadly, just to throw it out there, I think just for our listeners, what does family systems have to do with negotiation? And then let me just add that. Actually, let's leave it there. What does family systems have to do with, with negotiation? So family systems theory and family therapy really is a look at and an understanding that a family is an organizational unit, a complex emotional organizational unit across generational lines. It's interdependent and interactive and across generational lines. And understanding a family or working with a family, you move out of looking at this kind of linear cause and effect into being able to notice that if one thing happens to one member in a family, it impacts every member in the family. And people often don't know that, or don't believe that, don't experience it. However, if you meet together, you get to see that, of course, even the youngest member and the oldest member feel something that's happened to a third member in the family, and it impacts their own understanding of the whole. And so how there's a richly cross-joined thing in negotiation, I think, in that it's being able to understand that what I'm negotiating for and what I feel strongly for and what I want to get out of this experience, I have to understand not only my own experience and understand my own biases and where I've come from because who I am and how I perceive things is greatly informed by my own history. But I have to also understand that that's also true for you, for the other. And most of us don't have that training. We don't have the experience that the other or the person we're talking with has the richly complex set of issues that I have, you know, and so, and we, and we work towards not knowing it by deciding, especially in intimate pairs, by deciding I know better than you, than, than you about yourself. And so that's a way we don't have to look at it, rather than why am I looking at that? So I think that, that, and also because the family is the most primary relationship in all of our lives, and the mo and the earliest relationship between the primary caregiver and the infant, even in those first three months, which has been labeled by one great um, theorist, Don, uh, I just can't believe it. Anyway, I forget his name at the moment, so I'll remember it in a minute, but he, he named this phase the bliss of oneness. No, not Moreno. Um, uh, Don, somebody, I'll find it in a minute. I can tell you in a second probably. But um, Winnicott, Don Winnicott, it was an uh, object relations theorist. 
And in this phase of oneness, he de- bliss of oneness phase, he described, and, and people clearly have observed since, that the mother and the infant, or primary caregiver and the infant, in those first three months, are bonded in such a way, for the, the infant doesn't even know that they're separate. And in some ways, the mother doesn't even know it either. I mean, knows it consciously, but not. And they develop their own language, and they develop a way of reading each other that people didn't know before that the baby was learning and reading the mom as well as the mom was reading the baby. But it, this phase of development is the, is the blueprint for our, our, our intimate relationships throughout our lives. Now, it doesn't mean if something is screwed up then that you're ruined by any means. There's lots of information now that healing relationships can occur all the way through our lives and do. But, but those early messages and all early learnings in the family are how all of us deal when we're in a group. We will carry those things to So that often when people in an academic setting or in an organizational setting will talk about feelings they have about their boss or their manager or their professor in a way that when it's particularly charged as if they projected onto that person all the unresolved issues that they've had in their own family of origin. And so how it works, especially in difficult conversations, what's so helpful about it, the difficult conversations are about the here and now, but they're also, more importantly, about whoever this person stirs in me the unresolved issues I've had somewhere else. And so that's how they come together, around really it is moving completely out of blame into a way of looking at and understanding and really empathically understanding that the other, that what happened between us the other person wasn't trying to be hurtful. They had their own set of limitations from their own learning from somewhere else. And it's only by joining in on that level can we really understand one another. Um, do you find in doing this work that, uh, especially in, in what comes up, I think, in the interpersonal skills, that people are sometimes very unaware of the projection and the identity issues that they're bringing to the difficult conversation? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, and and most of us are. I mean, I so and I think part of what why I adapted or changed it a little bit to do some work with the presenter and exploring different parts of the presenter is to identify those things. And it's always it's often always shocking for the presenter to discover that it's not that they don't know how to say whatever they want to say. It's that whatever is blocking them from saying it is historical. And if they can, not as therapy, but just even experience that moment and understand that that moment is what's in my way of having this conversation now, that there's a way of replaying that moment, as I said before, and feeling not that you have completely resolved it, obviously, in 15 minutes, or in, but understanding that there's so much more that I'm bringing to the conversation, and therefore, there's so much more the other is. But who I've created this other person to be is not who that person is. It's who I just talked about before. Not as blaming that person, but understanding 
the, the misunderstanding between us or the hurt between us that I still carry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Jody, being the creator of IPS and obviously having run that exercise probably thousands and thousands of times, many, many of our listeners uh, either have facilitated that exercise or maybe hope to facilitate that exercise. And as, as all of us who have facilitated it before know that it can be very powerful, very emotional. Um, any advice that you have or any guidelines for people who are facilitating in organizations? So I think that the, the things that, that we built in right at the beginning, because it could be so emotional, were the boundaries. Um, and that is the right to pass and to feel free to say no to anything, which would free us all to be curious with one another with the certainty that we won't talk about or try anything we don't want to try, and really emphasize the importance of saying no or of passing, because both because that's important and because trust builds more quickly when people can say no to each other because no one knows what yes means. So that, and also then confidentiality, where people would agree that what goes on in the room will not leave the room by anybody, and that you can make reference to your own experience, but not talk, not name anybody else who was part of it. So I think that that's critically important for people to feel safe enough to engage in something that could become emotional. I think also um, I think it's by also being willing to be vulnerable with one another and for the, the facilitator to be clear that they understand what the other person might be experiencing and the challenge of it and the promise of it, having experienced it themselves, maybe sharing a bit of what that experience was like. I think that the other thing that I would say is I think that anyone using these techniques the, the the sort of the the rules we had for ourselves were that we would never try anything that we haven't tried on each other, both as the both as the the therapist and then also as the client, and doing it between the three of us several different times, so that we had a pretty good understanding of the range of emotion that might get stirred and triggered, and both from both as the leader or as the therapist and also as the client. And without doing that, I don't think it's okay to... to I, I don't mean I don't think it's okay. I would never do it without having experienced it and practiced it not in a place where I was responsible for the other, not as a, as a student or a colleague or organization, but with, with colleagues who have agreed to be equally vulnerable with each other and stumble around. So that would be the thing that I think is the most important, is to have a practice group where the contract is that we'll each be equally vulnerable and we'll take turns directing and take turns being the presenter or the client or whomever or the colleague. Um, And only in that way, which a lot of personal stuff will come up no matter what the organization is, um, but only in that way will you, you then as the facilitator feel confident 
that you have some understanding of the range of people's experience, um, both because you've experienced it and because it, it will stir things up in that and the other people. So I think that's, that's the most basic, I think. Carl Whitaker, one of the founders, one of the fathers of family therapy, um, who was brilliant, actually uh, wrote this great paper, and one part of it was a, a, something, but it, essentially it was a ten list of things that you needed to be able to do to save yourself. And the, the last one was form a professional cuddle group where you can where you will practice these things and help one another in both the, the feelings and issues that get stirred in you that will inform you in, and increase your effectiveness in working with others. Is that those issues, these issues are not weaknesses, they're strengths, and they once you experience them that way, you can use them and help facilitate that, the strengths in others. It really, I think it, it says a lot about the field as well when it comes to the people who enter it. Um, my experience is that when you bring up family or family therapy, you'll either find people really ready to talk about everything, maybe too much in their family, or you'll see people tense up and change the subject. Uh, so one question to float is just, you know, is the issue in terms of the way we relate to each other mostly an issue of our inability to face our own stuff, our own trauma? Is it maybe like in a Rob Keegan way, Bob Keegan way, adult development, post-Piaget, do we just not all have the cognitive ability? Like, I know that sometimes in a global, pluralistic, multicultural um, globe, it's, it's tough to know which values dictate which behavior in, in what element. We're online, we're, we're jumping around in so many ways, and we don't have, you know, for instance, the psychological security of a church in the same way. So is it a cognitive shortcoming? Is it... Um, do we just not understand, are we too focused on individual rights and don't understand that individuals are fragments of families? What is your assessment of why we are where we are? To whatever degree you'd like to go into it. I think it, it, it's all of those things. I, I don't think it's cognitive. I, I do think it's that, so like in a couple relationship, for example, the, the, a couple, I, I, I think this will relate to what you're saying. So when a couple comes in, they come in a crisis about something about something, some breach in the relationship or some whatever, whatever. And it's important to hold them and honor that that's the reason they're here and how painful it is to be here. And then when they feel understood about what the issue is that brings them, there's a way to expand the story, right? That the way to understand how it is that these two people who fell in love and are together, have recreated some mess, have created a mess between them that each believed they would never feel again in their lives. And so in that way, we start exploring and going back at least one generation and have each of them independently begin in front of one another, explore moments in their own histories that in this moment, in this crisis, reminds them of those feelings. So it goes, goes backwards in time to a time before they met one another to where else they felt this way. And it's in the replay of those stories where their partner becomes them 
and they become the hurtful other, and then reversing it, that by the time we, then we get back to the couple, there's a re-experiencing of the empathy and the similarity of the feelings that felt so oppositional. And I think that most of us are often, we get so invested in the divisiveness or improving the other is problematic or is wrong or doesn't get it, that we're not looking at that if we could zoom out and look at the two of us in this struggle, we would be able to hear that we're both saying exactly the same thing, only in a different way. That we're both hurting about feeling somehow not heard, somehow erased, somehow misunderstood. And instead of being able to sit in the vulnerability, we have to, we will, the best way out of that vulnerability is to fight. And the fight can go on for hours, depending on the people. The escalation is clear. People even know each other's lines in the escalation. And you never even remember what the fight was about, because the fight devolves into, you said, no, I didn't. You did, no, I didn't. And it becomes this thing that guarantees there's no way to understand what's happening, except to be certain you don't get me, and that feels terrible. So I think... I don't. I hope that answers your question. I think that if there was a way to, I, I mean, the fan, a fantasy is somebody, could, your group, all of us could go to Washington, and they could all do IPS. There would be a way that there would be enough recognition, enough empathy for people that you feel absolutely are disgusting and gross, that that shifts things. It. It shifts things dramatically. One, just one other quick example. So, and and I think it is the action. It's the doing rather than thinking. Cognitive understanding, while very valuable, doesn't change the emotional understanding. And that's, I believe, it's the experience of those moments that allows us to to make other changes. And. Just share one example, an example of several examples, but just one that's similar. So an adolescent daughter and her mother will come in in a terrible standoff. And they're in excruciating pain. They're really angry, very hostile. And I might, instead of, I listen to it for a little bit, and then I'll suggest that we try something different if they're willing to try something, and ask the mother to remember a moment when she was 14, like her daughter's 14, that she was in a little bit of a struggle with her own mother, or a big struggle with her own mother, and have the mother tell the story, and then have the daughter be her grandmother. Even if she's never met the grandmother, the mother could give her one or two lines of that moment in the argument, and in less than a minute, that daughter is the grandmother, and the grandmother and the mother are in the same battle. And instantly, the child, grandmother, becomes aware of many things and goes over to her mother and hugs her, understanding the mother's pain and gets it and then is able to go back and be in her own chair as herself and say, deeply connected to the mother and at the same time being able to say, 
but I'm not your mother and I'm not you. And we have to figure out a way to change that. I can't make that better. Without doing that work, that 14-year-old grows up feeling like the mother who's inadequately been able to please her own mother, and that 14-year-old, when she becomes a mother, is going to feel inadequate as a mother as well. So that kind of work can impact and change the story. And you don't forget the story, but you discover that, of course, we have it in us to change the story. And this, Jody, I mean, this is something that both delights and haunts me to have learned with you, the generational cascade. I'm just wondering if you can say a little bit more about that because um, I just, I, I'm just, I have a new humility of the way in which I am acting based on a script that I may not fully understand or have. So the generational cascade is looking at how, I mean, so uh, how do I do this in a short, short enough way? So um, one, one theorist of family therapy was, uh, it, it was um, Ivan Borsemeninaj, and he did a whole thing on contextual family therapy, which was very related to transgenerational family therapy. But, but for this purpose, I think this is a good theory to answer this question or to res- respond to the question. So while his theory is very complex, one of the basic tenets of it was that his belief was that inside each of us, we carried a very deep sense of justice, and that that sense of justice is something that we were always balancing both the what we were given and what we are owed, not in terms of indebtedness, but in terms of reciprocity in relationships. And was able to look at that those things, that that very internal sense of justice, because it's so deeply embedded, is a part of our unconscious loyalty to the people we love and need most in the world. As youngsters and as we grow, those loyalties remain the same, however much they get in our way. So one example of that is, again, if, if you... Um, Live, have siblings, and one sibling in a family is somehow limited, as I mentioned before, either emotionally, physically, in whatever, whatever way, that it's clear that that sibling can't do what you do, that there's something, in the, and it doesn't have to be extreme, but whatever. Often what will happen is, is the, the well, or the, the person not struggling with that limitation, as they move forward in their life, find that they keep sabotaging themselves at the very point that they'll move forward. And it's always mysterious. There's no conscious awareness that it's linked to balancing the scales with their sibling. And without being, I believe, without doing that work and being able to replay it, even have a conversation with that sibling, or if, God forbid, the sibling had died, still be able to have a conversation about, is it okay for me to have a full life if you can't? It's unjust. It's not fair. And yet, by playing it out dramatically, you can be both the limited one and yourself and give yourself permission as, as the limited one to have a life because the limited one 
doesn't want you to be limited. And I think the generational cascade is that if so, there's let's be, there's behavior in a family that in the current day is not terribly effective. That behavior, if you trace it back far enough, often at least three generations, but sometimes further, that that kind of behavior was adaptive, highly adaptive. It's what allowed people to survive. And so that gets played down. So just as the adolescent girl, the mother and the adolescent girl, the mother was replaying her relationship with her own mother, and it was only in doing that the daughter could see the story, that the mother could also begin to have empathy for her own mother, the daughter's grandmother, for understanding that she had dealt with her daughter not because she tried to hurt her. In fact, she was determined to give her something she never got herself. And so the, the chain goes on. It does not mean we're doomed to repeat it forever because if we discover, if we take the time to look at what's in our way, we can change the story. There's a lot of loyalty and conflict about changing the story because even the dysfunctional behavior, even when we know it's dysfunctional, it feels somehow disloyal to be able to have something different than the people we love the most, even though those people, no matter how screwed up things got, really wanted us to have something more than they had. So that's how it's passed on. And trauma is passed on in the same way. Um, we certainly see it with Holocaust victims and their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren who may be experiencing anxiety and have no idea why or how. And when they learn the story, it becomes that level of anxiety is about something that is in their bones, um, but was not something they experienced. I think it's so interesting that it's very easy to understand the depth of feeling but it, within a family system. You know, it's such, those are such deep relationships. And for those of us who have done this in business and organizational contexts, I think people are often shocked at how much emotional resonance they're bringing to, you know, this is just work, you know, this isn't personal. And they realize it's deeply personal. Deeply personal, right? Yeah, and that they're, they've got much, much stronger feelings about it than, they're, than they've been admitting in the public discourse. Right, right. And, and it's often surprising that there might be some initial resistance saying, but this is business or this is this or that. But as soon as you get into it and people experience it, they they appreciate it, they get it, and they get that they're as much a part of the issue as the other. And there's something very um, freeing about that. And the same thing is true with couples, that it's very hard. The couples aren't as willing to see that the problem isn't in the other. <laughs> We come in being certain that the other one is the problem. Um, however, the learning is discovering that we're also the part of the issue and that its growth comes from being able to recognize we all screw up and we all repeat patterns that we have no idea we're repeating. 
and that we've actually said to ourselves as children, I will never do this to my children and or say this to, and out it will pop. I mean, this just I think, confirms that my theory that all of the things, and I literally mean all at this point, that are so effective and exciting about negotiation in terms of understanding patterns, double loop learning, thinking about our thought, kind of comes full circle for me here. Because if if we can't just change our behavior because someone tells us to, or because we think we want to at some at some level in our portfolio of interests, then the change of thought to me is is conversion. And for me, IPS is is the moment of conversion where it it, it is it is a it has to be experienced. It has to be experienced. No one can fill you up with negotiation ability. Um, and, and frankly, I, I'm not, I'm not sure if for either of you, I guess is kind of like a concluding question. I'm curious, what do you think is, is different between thinking about how to have healthy relationships and strong communication and negotiating? Like, is there any difference in terms of the best negotiators are the most self-aware negotiators and the most self-aware people are the people who understand their family? Is that it? Or, or do you, I'm curious just to, just to poke at it. Right. So I, I think that it is about uh, self-awareness and more importantly, not more importantly, but a willingness to learn more about myself as I interact with others and what I'm bringing that works and what it doesn't and why, what part of me is part of the, the impasse and what part of me is part of the success. And... I think it really is a willingness in what, whatever arena to be curious about myself and be curious about the other, to be willing to listen to the other, even if they're talking to me about me and I dis disagree with what they're saying. But if I could convert my moving immediately to defend and attack and be curious about how it is you see that in me or what that feels like in you, that changes the dynamic right away. Um, Some people find it a revelation that they are allowed or they can change their story about themselves. Right, right. And I think one of the places that it's hard about changing the story about ourselves is that that, that does uh, move into the loyalty frame about the generations before us. That if you really, you don't have to look far, it's even three generations, you will see the relationship patterns that are repeated perfectly. Sadly, um, the dysfunction is repeated over and over and over again. Being able to look at it and look at the meaning of it in you and being able to know that finding a different way a way to change the story is not being disloyal because each of those generations before us kept trying to change the story. And, and again, it started, it was critical, it was about survival. So it's pretty hard to argue with the wisdom of survival, right? And, and that, that's also true in each of us, individually working with people and helping them look at it in a place where they may get triggered by something, and looking at that there is some little child part of us that learned very early how to behave this way, whatever this way is. And whatever this way is has so much wisdom in it and has such conviction about it 
that even though we're now adults, the moment that trigger happens, this little one pops up, and this little one is saying, I'm your survival. Do not do anything different than the way I did it. Because without me, you wouldn't be here. And so the debate then is the internal debate, the two-chair debate, the two-chair is being able to look at, to truly commit to loving that little one because that wisdom was brilliant and to try it and let it know that now in 2022, there are some other things you might add to that, but that you'll never leave that behind, that you will continue to love and honor that part because it had way more wisdom than you could have known back then. We'll, we'll have to continue this, Jody, just personally in some way, because I'm, you know, everything from having, yeah, are you, do you lose yourself when you let go of trauma and self-cohesion and that whole Ashkenazic bloodline that I also come from? There's, there's, I mean, there, there's, there's so much here. So we're going to have to keep talking. And luckily we're, we're doing this negotiating with family work and course that there'll be more to come on. So we'll keep talking. I'm, I'm, Gwen, I don't know if you have anything else and I, I want to give space and time to, to do a proper wrap up, but um, all in all from my end, Jody, I'm just very, feel very lucky that I get to be in this position and, and also very happy and, and relieved in a way to have this on record. Um, Cause that, I think that was always the goal. And I like to say that, you know, in my head, uh, I read getting to yes. And that's how that started my journey. And so I like to say that I kind of came to the program on negotiation for, because of Roger Fisher, but stayed because of Jody Shire. There, there's the father of the field, but there's the mother too, and so it's 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 really an honor honor to you know, you can hear the echoes of of Whitaker and and all the things you've added, and um, it's become a part of so many trainers, whether they know it or not. Um, the things that we do that we think we don't know why people will respond so well to them, it's because you gave them to us for the most part. Um, so thank you, um, and yeah, I'll turn it over uh, either Jody for final thoughts or Gwen for kind of wrap up questions. I just wanted to say thank you so much for for joining us. And uh, as a as a practitioner, it is it it's just revelatory to hear how this was created um, to understand at a deeper level. I think some of the some of the family therapy aspects of it and the past trauma um, doesn't get brought into the 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 business use of IPS sometimes. And I love hearing that that was that was a part of it. Um, I think we, we get very nervous about boundaries in a, in an organization, but I'm just so inspired. And now I want to go out and, and facilitate a whole bunch of IPS sessions. Say, sorry. I, I know I just said, Hey, let's end up with you two and just started talking again. But the, the current group, that's a side note that we're all in this group of 30 some odd practitioners. I've always imagined a working practice group that continually does IPSs to hone both the facilitation and to grow. Um, so there's a group of people, if there's the inclination, and, and Jody, we can talk about that. And and yeah, I'm just realizing that now that basically we've gathered a group of people who who kind of miss IPS um, and that experience. Yeah, I think it'd be wonderful to do it and redo it and keep doing it. And um, I thank both of you. This has been very exciting for me. and. And it is the action stuff, psychodrama, gestalt, and 
and understanding the depth of the human experience and using it, not trying to squelch it, really understand just how complex we all are. And however different, how basically we're pretty similar. However uniquely we create a story, our humanity is pretty similar. We get sad about the same things and hurt about the same things. Thank you. Great. This was wonderful. Just wonderful. Well, Max, that was so interesting to hear the origins of a tool that has become a real centerpiece for, for many programs. And as a tool is brought out into the world and used, it, it sometimes morphs. And many of us are several generations away from the creation story. So I, I just thought it was so fun to hear how that came to be within the Harvard Negotiation Project. Yeah, I think it's so lovely that we are people that come out of the program on negotiation tradition that are looking backwards to look forwards, if that makes sense, which is just like you said, who knows how much meaning we've lost in the things that we're doing. And it's very surreal to um, to learn where something you've been using for a while actually comes from and, and what it suggests in terms of, at least for me, thinking about um, not just an individual negotiator, but how an individual operates within their family or organization. Thank you so much for listening to Trainer Talk. Join us next episode when we have Nassim Khoury, a negotiation author, professor, facilitator extraordinaire, not to mention a singer-songwriter on our episode. Talk to you then. You've been listening to Trainer Talk. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us again. And until next time, Happy negotiating.